The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. I know a number of you were concerned with the title of Sermon Slaughter that this would have to do with our college football teams, but I assure you, it does not. Our sermon today has to do with the irony of Christmas. If the baby Jesus slept in heavenly peace, he certainly does not do so on this night that Matthew gives us in Bethlehem. This is perhaps a year and a half to two years after the manger scene. Mary and Joseph appear to have taken up residence in Joseph's ancestral city of Bethlehem. And the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, has come as a fugitive beneath the sword of a bloodthirsty king. He's a king in flight. He's a child at risk. These two kings, Jesus and Herod, are very different in so many ways, aren't they? One so very poor, and the other so very, very rich. One mighty in power, and the other as weak as only a baby can be. One who lives in several palaces throughout Judea, and another who has no place to lay his head. And yet, this they share in common, that their names are known, and that their ways of living continue to this day. There is a way of Herod, and there is a way of Jesus. Let's listen for those ways as we read the scripture today. God's word in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. You'll find this on page 784 of the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now, after the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. Well, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. 
and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. The way of Herod is the way that makes its own way. Herod is, I think, the ultimate self-made man, a self of his own making. And there are three rules to the way of Herod, in case you're interested. The first is to consolidate power. The second is to eliminate competition. And the third is to manage your legacy. Consolidate power. We see in the actions of Herod these three rules, and the first being that you get as much power as you can. Herod's a master at doing so. He rises to power amid the frictions of uh, Jewish revolutionaries, the Hashemonians, who uh, struggle against one another, and there is Herod to take advantage of every difference, in the context of uh, Roman strife, regional rulers, Herod can play one off against another until he finds himself in charge. And so when these magi come knocking on the doors looking for the king of the Jews, this one who has learned that the way to succeed is to consolidate power is troubled. Nobody should wear that title, but he himself, he hardly deserves it. Herod is, as one theologian, Kenneth Bailey writes, racially Arab religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. And yet he will uh, countenance no rival. Nietzsche would be proud, who writes, The world itself is the will to power and nothing else. And you yourself are the will to power and nothing else. The second rule of the way of Herod is eliminate competition. Herod, of course, will send to Bethlehem to slaughter uh, these innocent children. Historians wonder, did this really happen? There's no other record. And yet there are many things of which there is no other record that historians acknowledge are very historical in the scriptures. And would this have been notable given the scope of Herod's usual brutality? So many atrocities, Josephus, the historian, chronicles for us. Herod when his wife's brother receives a standing ovation for his remarks in the temple, invites him to swim in his swimming pool and has servants pull him under playing a game, holding him just unfortunately a bit too long. Herod had ten wives, the one he loved the most. He decided one day he needed to kill, slaughtered her and grieved for months. He killed three of his own sons. So who would notice Bethlehem, a small village, even if it had a thousand people with a high infant mortality rate, probably would not have had in and around the environs more than 12 to 20 
uh, children at the age of um, less than two years old. Eliminate the competition. The difference between jealousy and envy is jealousy is wanting something that your neighbor has. Envy is wanting your neighbor not to have what they have. No power for anybody but himself. This second rule is a corollary of the first. Consolidate power, eliminate competition, and then finally, manage your legacy. What will survive you? Of course, Herod was a great builder. He was not only an administrative genius with the way he could run uh, and administer on behalf of the Romans, the Judean province, but he could take the raw materials of nature and put them into the stuff that accentuate, highlighted uh, his own glory. Today, still standing in Israel, we will find Herodium. Uh, we'll find this great conical mountain, man-made mountain with a palace at the top. We found, by the way, uh, just last year, Herod's tomb on the side of this mountain. Archaeologists had looked at the top, they had looked at the bottom, and only recently they looked at the side where presiding uh, over his, to- his tomb was a five-story tower. Brilliant architecture. When Herod came to his demise, he was very, very sick and debilitating and uh, sort of a rotting disease that he had. He knew he was going to die, but he knew that under his thumb, the taxation, the oppression of the land, he had made himself precious few friends and few would mourn and grieve his going. So what did he do? He filled, he ordered the Hippodrome of Jericho, this stadium essentially where they raced chariots, to be filled with the leading uh, citizens of Judea, the elites of his day. And he said that when I die, let the order go out before people are notified, slaughter all of these people so that all of Judea will grieve when I die. Thankfully, that order was never given. And few, few would Note with a tear in their eye the passing of Herod. That's the way of Herod. The way of Jesus is not self-made. It's a borrowed way. It's a path that had been traveled before. And we don't notice it or understand it in terms of the actions of Jesus. He's just a child who's being carried by his parents from one place to the next. No, but Matthew calls attention to the itinerary, to the place names. Behind every place there's a story. Matthew wants you to note the story behind these locations. There are three of them. And I want to read to you the texts at more length than Matthew takes time to quote in his gospel so you can understand the Jesus way, as I believe Matthew does. The first location is Egypt. We see in verse 14, an angel tells Joseph, the father, take this child to Egypt to flee the avenging king. Well, what for an, for an Israelite does Egypt mean uh, other than a place where one has lost contact with your God? To, be, have, to have been removed from your ancestral lands, to be estranged from home, to be enslaved, to have lost your freedom, not to be able to worship your God, to be in a pagan land, Egypt. Hosea, in the 8th century, would speak of judgment and grace. And he would remember the judgment that God poured out on this king Pharaoh who so oppressed 
the people that belonged really to the Lord. But he would speak of it in a strange way, a judgment suppressed, a visitation of God in peace and mercy and in grace. The restoration between God and a father. Listen to the voice of the Lord through Hosea. When Israel was my child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Two cities that were destroyed. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. Since the beginning of time, human beings have made God an enemy. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We have sought our own power, our own autonomy. And yet here from heaven, God says, you know, I don't come to bring judgment because I love you like a father loves a child. These are the words that belong to the place called Egypt. And so Matthew quotes them as the way of Jesus to have peace with God through a father. The story moves on now to the location of verse 18. Ramah. Ramah is a town in Israel. It's a place of dislocation from brothers and sisters, a place where a family is torn apart. The words that are quoted here are the words of Jeremiah in the 6th century. 586 B.C., as you know, the Babylonians came. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sent his forces to slaughter, to destroy. And they took captives like a holocaust and they gathered the citizens of Jerusalem together in Ramah. There they waited deportation. And, and Jeremiah has a vision that Rachel... The wife of Jacob, Israel, the mother of the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, that she from her grave grieves the separation of her family as they are broken apart by war and strife and fighting. And so Matthew says, remember this prophecy, the words of Jeremiah in chapter 31. Jeremiah writes, of restoration, of a day when family will be reunited, brother to brother and sister to sister. At that time, says the Lord, I will bring the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. See, I'm going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest places of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor together, a great company. They shall return here. Then shall the young women rejoice Young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. 
Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted, for they are no more. But thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work. He speaks of a new covenant. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If in Egypt we discover that we are a people with peace, with God, we have a father. In Ramah we discover that we have peace with brothers and sisters. That this father wants to restore to himself a family and we to one another. The story moves on. The story of cities and their stories. In verse 23, Nazareth is the first third place. Nazareth, not a well-known city. Joseph doesn't seem to want to go to Nazareth, though they've been there before. They want to be in Judea near Jerusalem. Uh, not in this area that's uh, less Jewish. And yet the legacy of this uh, King Herod is found in his son Archelaus, who's as brutal as Herod was and not nearly as competent. He'll only rule for 10 years before Pilate is set as administrator over this era, area. Nazareth, what does that mean? Well, most likely is that it comes from uh, the Hebrew word nezer, netzer. For branch, for branch. It's an organic, it's a creation term. It's a term that's rooted in the promise that someday a son will come that like a stump that's sawn off, the lineage of David will bring forth a sprout that will come to bring renewal to creation, to end the consumption and the destruction that brutalizes the faith of the earth, the tragedy that Cain and Abel, who were disenfranchised from each other by their violence, the blood will be put into the sown into the earth and it will cry out. And all of creation will mourn and grieve and wait for its redemption, as we read in Paul in Romans 8. This is the story of a son who will come. And Isaiah prophesies likewise. In Isaiah chapter 11, he says, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide but what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. The way of Jesus is the way of peace with creation. So you see, this story is a story of restoration and reconciliation between a child and a father, between a child and her siblings, and between a child and this uh, created order. This is the way of Jesus. The way of Herod is a way of big things that come to nothing. 
I want to read to you a little parable by a a gentleman by the name of of William Barton, who uh, concluded his life and ministry in 1930, I believe. Uh, And he was a pastor. He was most known as a biographer of Abraham Lincoln. But he would write these little fables in the affected voice of a sage. This one's called The Millionaire and the Scrub Lady. There is a certain millionaire who hath his offices on the second floor of the First National Bank building. And when he goeth up to his offices, he rideth in the elevator. But when he goeth down, then he walketh. And he is an haughty man who once was poor and hath risen in the world. He is a self-made man who worshipeth his maker. And he payeth his rent regularly on the first day of the month. And he considereth not that there are human beings who run the elevators and who clean the windows, hanging at a great height above the sidewalk, and who shovel coal into the furnaces under the boilers, neither doth he at Christmas time remember any of them with a tip or a turkey. And there is in that building a poor woman who scrubbeth the stairs and the halls, and he hath walked past her often, but hath never seen her until recently. For his head was high in the air, and he was thinking of more millions Now it came to pass on a day that he left his office and started to walk down the stairs. And the scrub lady was halfway down, for she had begun at the top and was giving the stairs their first once over. And upon the topmost stair in a wet and soapy spot, there was a large cake of yellow soap. And the millionaire stepped upon it. Now the foot with which he set upon the soap flew eastward toward the sunrise. And the other foot started on an expedition of its own toward the going down of the sun. And the millionaire sat down upon the topmost step, but he did not remain there. As it had been his intention to descend, so he descended, but not in the manner of his original design. And as he descended, he struck each step with a sound as if it had been a drum. And the scrub lady stood aside courteously and let him go. And at the bottom, he arose and considered whether he should rush into the office of the building and demand that the scrub lady be fired. But he considered that if he should tell the reason, there would be great mirth among the occupants of the building. And so he held his peace. But since that day, he hath taken notice of the scrub lady and passeth her with circumspection. For there was no one so high or mighty that he can afford to ignore any of his fellow human beings. For a very humble scrub lady and a very common bar of yellow soap can take the mind of a great man off his business troubles with surprising rapidity. Wherefore, consider these things and count not thyself too high above even the humblest of the children of God, lest happily thou come down from thy place of pride and walk off with thy bruises aching a little more by reason of thy suspicion that the scrub lady is smiling into her suds (laughs) and facing the day's work the more cheerfully by reason of the fun thou hast afforded her. For these are solemn days, and he that bringeth a smile to the face of the scrub lady hath not lived in vain. (laughs) Archaeologists find Herod's grave, National Geographic this month, does a great report of it. It's been smashed by uh, Jews who do not own him as their savior. In the the, uh, uprising of the 60s, and then again in 135, uh, the Romans would topple the temple and crush Masada. The way of Herod is a way that starts big and gets very, very small. The way of Jesus is a way that starts so very small, almost imperceptibly, with a baby, with a child. But it gets very, 
very large. Oscar uh, Coleman, the Lutheran German theologian, speaks of what he calls progressive reduction. He, he says if you read the whole story of the Bible, you notice there's this collapse that's going on from, from God's redemptive work, which begins with creation, but then focuses in on humanity. And then out of humanity, he calls a nation Israel. And then out of Israel, he calls a remnant. And out of that remnant, but one man, a baby. And then Coleman says, but notice also that there's this, this progressive expansion from that one child, a band of disciples, and a remnant of Israel. And then all of the nations. And then soon all of creation. The way of Jesus is the way of peace, reconciliation with the Father, with one another, with all of creation. It's coming. In World War One, five months into the war, 1914, something strange happened. Something, in terms of King Herod, I would say horrible happened. The two enemies sat in the cold, frozen slush. It was bitter cold that year. And in six to eight foot trenches that were filled with a slurry of ice and blood and mud, standing in their boots and shivering, the French and the British on one side, the Germans on the other, just feet across from each other. When the noise of the so-called sausage gun ceased, they could hear the moaning and the cries for help of their struggling compatriots who lay in the killing field between these two moats. Kaiser had tried to encourage the boost of the morale of his troops, so he'd sent these little Christmas trees that had candles clipped to the fir branches. And the Germans set them on the parapets above their heads so that they could see their light. And the Brits from their side, they heard music. They didn't understand the words, but they recognized the tune, Silent Night. And they began to sing, began to sing of this child. And in two different languages, these two armies of war could hear each other singing. As soon there were hand signals, there were signs that were made, shadows, silhouettes walking on the parapets. And before long, these two armies were joining each other for a celebration of this peace child in their midst. They gathered their dead. They buried them between these trenches. They held uh, services of worship. The opera singers of Paris and Germany uh, entertained with Christmas carols the enemy troops. It was a stunning, surprising thing that enemies could embrace and shake hands for a night. And then when it was over, they went back to their trenches. In some places up and down this line, the, the Christmas truce lasted through New Year's. In some places, even longer. Letters went home. Uh, the uh, authorities tried to censor them. They didn't want people back on the home front to be aware of this. The field commanders ordered the men back into the troops. They ordered rolling barrages to keep them from getting out of their troops. Again, they had to rotate uh, uh, divisions away from those trenches who had experienced the Christmas truce because they had tasted peace. They had known for a night the way of Jesus, the child that changes everything. Let's pray. Because of this child, we can call you our Heavenly Father. Because of 
this child, we know that there is a spirit within us under the new covenant who binds us to one another and gives us the love that we need. Because of this child, we know that there will be a king who rules all of the earth with peace. And the days of our destruction and abuse of this creation will come to a close. God, may we be a people who carry this secret child within us. Who live, though the night continues to be dark, though we walk among the titans of earth who affect our destiny, yet we know the future, the story that will unfold and someday will be ours. Help us, Lord, to live into that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.